Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the Iran nuclear deal. We're out. How some Iranians are reacting. It's National Foster Care Month. We'll talk to a service provider and recipient. And then Nameless Network plans its new museum dedicated to pizza. Hi, thanks for joining us. I'm Ross Tuttle filling in for Ashley Ford. In a moment, we're going to get on Skype with two Iranians living in Tehran. When the Iran nuclear deal was finalized three years ago, they, like many, saw an opportunity for the warming of relations between the U.S. and Iran. What they grasped, unlike our president, is that when you have two countries with such historically strained relations, you don't solve everything or enact the perfect agreement in one stroke. It's a process. They enthusiastically embraced this process and encouraged people from the West to visit Iran, learn about the country and its people, and they opened a space expressly for this purpose. The decision yesterday by President Trump to withdraw from the agreement left them, well, I'll let them tell you. Navid Yousafian, founder and director of CU in Iran, and Mina Jazayeri, the organization's creative director, thanks for joining us from Tehran. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So can you just talk to me real quick, uh, Navid, about founding of CU in Iran and what you were hoping to achieve? Yeah, of course. Um, the main vision for CU in Iran was, I mean, it actually started when I was living in the U.S. I'm still a student in University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, and it's kind of like started with understanding the fact that a lot of people have a lot of, like, distorted, imagined, like, conceptions about Iran, a lot of misconceptions. And I kind of believe that those type of misconceptions eventually result in some sort of, like, uh, Iranophobic understanding of politics as well, which would eventually might result in sanctions and, like, this threat of war and everything. So the, the reason behind it was to invite people to come to Iran and um, have some sort of, like, first-hand experiences over there mm. uh, by understanding what's going on over there and understanding the similarities between among the people, like, and especially understanding the fact that we are much more similar to each other, like Iranians and Americans, compared to Iranians to their government and Americans to their government. I, I feel like there's a lot of big potential for how people can bring about some sort of like sense of global solidarity that would avoid such decisions like what we had last night. And Mina, what were your thoughts uh, when you heard about um, the decision? Uh, you know, it, well, it didn't come as a surprise, I'm guessing, but when you heard about the final decision by President Trump to withdraw from the nuclear deal? Yeah, I was not surprised at all. I was really expecting that. I was actually sleeping when he was talking. <laughs> Um, but um, how I felt, I actually felt like, like you said, that um, we came so far and we had, we had this process going on for I, I think three years now, and now it's now it's stopped and it's really sad. We don't really know what is the extent, you know. So that's the big concern right now for me. I don't know the uh, size of it yet. Right. What's going to happen next? And Navid, what about you? What were you, what were your feeling? I have similar ideas as what you mentioned in the beginning, like how this is kind of like a process. I believe that what's happened last night shouldn't be understood as like some sort of like an exceptional decision coming out of a vacuum. Uh, what's been going on between Iran and the U.S. for years and years, for decades, uh, and not necessarily just after the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran. Uh, I think there is a trend over there. We had this from the time of Bush, at least, like with the discourse of axis of evil. Then we had the HR 158 with Obama, and then the Muslim ban. So I would say, like, this is not something like exceptionally happening that we should get like surprised and try to analyze that specific event. This has been going on for a while, and 
it's just a part of like a bigger picture of American politics, uh, which I would understand it as like this discourse of like international police that is in charge of like controlling everywhere in the world and whatever that doesn't suit some like Americans' uh, government, they would just intervene and have this right of intervening wherever they want. What are other folks saying? I mean, I imagine you've been speaking with a lot of your friends and family and other individuals. What are other folks saying um, in and around Tehran and elsewhere? Some people say that now it's a good chance for hardliners to take charge of the whole situation in Iran, and that's not really good for us. And uh, some people are worried that it would um, lead to interference of foreign policy into our country, like they want to take, they, they take care of this situation. Is there concern about renewed sanctions, possibly, and, and further isolation or renewed isolation of Iran in the international community? Yeah, of course, yeah. I think um, that goes toward the business part of Iran, like how the um, economy, economy is going to be affected by it. Like for now, we know that we are not going to have um, new airplanes. Like Boeing uh, is already canceling, I think, the contracts that they, they're going to have. So. And just to put this into some perspective, you know, and it, so it's been about, you know, three years since the, the agreement went into effect. Um, what were those years like, and maybe two years, because I know President Trump signaled a lot of things and the travel ban came out and that was a blow uh, to Iran and Iranians. But what were those two years like after this deal was enacted? Was it a time of, of hope and, and of, you know, a feeling like, okay, now, now we're getting somewhere. This, this feels like progress. Yeah. I think the big, uh, the biggest part for me was that uh, after a lot of time, I could feel that we are not isolated anymore. There are there are doors opening to us. We can talk, like we can be heard. But um, I think now, I don't know how, for how long this is going to continue. So, Navid, what were your thought? What are your thoughts? I think in certain parts, like which Mina mentioned, uh, the airplanes, for example. But this is very important when it comes to like medicine and drugs as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were suffering from this because there was no access to medicine, mm -hmm. and a lot of people died. Actually, um, I know it sounds horrible, but. It's the actual truth happening in everyday life of Iranians because of the sanctions. But I want to mention something about what Mina said earlier about the hardliners, because I feel like um, this is very important to uh, mention how, um, like, the, what's happening is that by like getting out of the Iran deal, the the victims are people living in Iran, not just necessarily for commodities, not just because of like tourism or anything like that. This, all about how this discourse of security and like the not being able to have right relationship with other countries gets hijacked by the government as well and kind of like results in some sort of like dismissal of the democratic demands from the within the society and considering what's going on in Iran at the moment it's very active I'm not sure if you followed the news recent, like the recent news from the last five five months but you know, like this becomes some, some, somehow abused by saying that now that we have like an enemy outside, we all need to stand together and unite with each other and we should support our, uh, our government in any sense. Or, you know, like th these are things that are against Iranian people's democratic demands and activities. So like the result like this, by just cutting off this deal, I think what's happening is that people definitely more in Iran than in the U.S. are the ones who are paying the cost. Well, that's, that's an important point. I thank you for making that. And just one final thing. Um, we, we've got about 30 seconds left, if that. Uh, if you were able to say one thing to President Trump, um, 
what would it be? What would you like to tell him? <laughs> Depends on how rude you can get. <laughs> as rude as you would like. <laughs> uh, but what I can say is that at least if you want to like hurt and destroy the Iranians' lives in Iran, don't end your notes by saying that I'm doing like my heart is beating with the Iranian people and I'm doing it. Yeah. And I, I, the Iranian people should be assured that I'm supporting them and I know what's happening and the regime has hijacked. Like all this rhetoric that is just abusing Iranian people. And I don't think it's fair. So it's better not to use that rhetoric again. Yeah. And me, I would call him a hypocrite. A hypocrite, yeah. I'm not sure if hypocrite is enough for him, but yeah. Yeah. Right. Go on. I mean, you know, television. I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's being polite. Um, well, yeah. guys, again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. I, again, I know it's late, and so we're, we're so thankful you were able to come on and share your thoughts with us. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to share our yeah. ideas. Thank you. Okay, take care. Up next, it's Foster Care Awareness Month, and that means a time to reflect on the precariousness of life for thousands of children in New York City and beyond, and on those who try to provide for them some stability, predictability, and though it may sound corny, love. Recently, I spoke with Jess Danhauser, CEO of one of the oldest child welfare organizations in the country, New York's Graham Wyndham, and one young adult who benefited from their services, Deshaun Johnson. Here's that conversation. So, Jess and Deshaun, thanks for joining us today. I'm glad you were able to come in. Um, so, Jess, I want to start with you. Um, tell me, what kind of situation are we dealing with here in the city and in the borough from a child welfare perspective? Yeah, in New York City, there's about 9,000 children who are in foster care. Um, another uh, 30,000 children whose families receive preventive services uh, in New York City. Brooklyn is typically about 25 to 30 percent of that. Um, so, you know, ranging around 2,500 children who are in foster care mm -hmm. um, and, you know, about 10,000 children who receive in-home preventive services. Preventive services. Preventive services is doing in-home family therapies, mm -hmm. being at the table with families, helping them um, navigate their situations to care safely mm -hmm. for their children and avoid coming into foster care. I see. I'm just curious, why Brooklyn is your headquarters, right? The headquarters for Graham Wyndham. It is. Is it that is. just happenstance, or is there a reason why you guys are in Brooklyn? We're in Brooklyn because we have a lot of kids and families that we care about here and that we serve here. Um, we're also in Harlem in the South Bronx and have a school in Westchester. Mm -hmm. um, but Brooklyn is um, one of the, the places that we are really deeply committed to. Um, our offices here in Brooklyn are on 540 Atlantic Avenue, and we run preventive services, foster care, our our Graham Slam program and many other programs mm -hmm. around health and wellness of children out of that office. Okay, cool. And so, uh, Deshaun, tell me, how old are you? I'm 22. 22. 22 and how long have you been in, in the foster care system, or how long uh, have you been? The first time I was taken home um, into the system, I was five years old. Um, I've been in the system. I came out of the system. I was about a teenager age, mm -hmm. and I moved back with my mom. And then I got into some problems in the juvenile system and wound up back into the system again. And then I wound up to Graham Care. And from there, things just took off. You know, I changed my life around um, mm -hmm. as a kid, you know, from a low-income income area. Um, I didn't have so much growing up. I grew up around five boroughs in the city, you know, in the care, being in the care. Mm -hmm. Just as that, you know, being moved to home to home. And 
I mean, I had a big family. I had a lot of siblings, my seven kids. So, you know, being apart away from my family every day, it was hard. Mm-hmm. So good. how old were you when you came into contact with Graham Wyndham? Um, I was 16. I was 15 years old at the time. I was 15 years old. And what was the context? Um, the context was um, to go to Graham. It was like an outreach program and stuff like that mm-hmm. um, to change my way. I had got some, like I said, I got into some problems in sure. juvenile um, as a young age, you know, Coming into high school, I didn't know what to really do, and I, my focus wasn't really on that main path right now. I didn't have a good path, so mm-hmm. I think I changed around when I got to Grant. Right. And so what kinds of, um, Jess, what kinds of services do you provide to help people like, in Deshaun's situation? You know, our, our goal for our kids is the goal for any kid, to make sure we're helping them develop into successful young adults. Mm-hmm. We embrace their entire family and work with them. Um, and we make sure that we're providing opportunity. Um, so in Deshaun's case, um, he was part of um, our school. He was part of our, our residential program for a short time. He was involved in our athletic programs. Mm-hmm. And when so you guys have a residential program. You have an do. actual residence. Yes. We do. We do. It's, um, <laughs> it's been uh, in Westchester for about 100 years. Um, and we can talk more about the, the history in a moment. But Deshaun um, was one of the first young people in our program called Graham Slam. Mm-hmm. So after he graduated from our high school, he was deciding what he wanted to do with his life. And um, it occurred to us that all of our graduates, some of our kids who might be close to aging out of foster care, which we try to avoid, are left alone. Mm-hmm. And they kind of are left to defend for themselves at a very young age, 21. We know from brain science that adolescence goes a lot longer and we know just from everybody's circumstance that kids who are coming out of high school need real support. So we launched this um, program that centers around having a coach. So Sean's been working with that coach for the last few years um, and has been extraordinarily successful. Hmm. So you guys help, I mean, give a whole range of services. I mean, you work with families to try to help them mitigate some of the problems that they're facing so that their children don't end up in the foster system, right? And then you help children once they are in the foster system and the families who are fostering the kids, correct? That's right. Right. That's right. And then beyond into, into, you know, early adult. You know, kids who come into the child welfare system are kids first. And what we want to provide is a community that they can be in and take advantage of a whole host of opportunities and get the services that they need along the way. But most of all, to get relationships with caring adults that they're going to continue with for the rest of their life. Growing up in the system, you know, you have different permanency planning, social workers, and stuff like that kids face and may have. And, you know, they might not be around, you know, after they graduate or they might be put into a different agency. I think about what Graham is um, fortunate on based off with the SLAM program. Um, they work with you, and, you know, from that time being in high school, then afterwards, I think is because they work up to what, until you're 25 years old. So I think that's a great program right there. Um, and because, like, a lot of kids, when they transition out of high school, um, you know, they got to juggle a job. They might not have, you know, a, a place. You know, they get put into independent living. So mm-hmm. you get put into independent living, but what you taught these life skills, though, and that's where the slam coach comes in at, you know, be able that person, you know, to be there for you, um, to talk to, you know, how to show you how to live, you know, time management, juggle your job, you know, going to school, education as well. And I think that was for very grateful for Graham to do for me, and I'm uh, rising right now. That's great. That's great to hear. And I want to talk a little bit more about the, yeah. the coach, the slam coach. But first, I want to talk about what it's like sort of in the earlier years before you get to that stage. And you've written, because I know there are a lot of challenges that you face, I mean, when you're in this situation, when you're moving from house to house. And I saw you wrote um, about some of those challenges when you 
were moved out of your aunt's house and you wondered, you know, why am I being relocated again? Is this my fault? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, about some of those feelings and about that kind of, that uncertainty? I mean, I felt like I was a little younger at the time and, you know, being around my brothers every scene, my brothers every day, and then just one moment, you just be taken out your home. It's like, is this reason my fault? It's like, what's going on? Am I doing something wrong? Um... You know, we fail to realize, you know, we only cares and we don't know. We're just going to take an effect. And, you know, it, it sometimes paralyzes us. You know, sometimes a lot of kids, they don't know how to handle that. Mm-hmm. And we got to go to outreach programs. You got to go to see a social worker um, or, you know, what is it called? Wellness. You got to go to health and wellness and see your counselors and stuff like that. And it takes, in the, it takes a cause because some kids don't reach out. You know, we all need help. And that's where things, that's where things come in hand. You know, you got to be able to ask for that help or sometimes that help is just given to you. You know, we try to um, look through the eyes of our kids and kids moving from home to home to home is a travesty. Um, this past year, we're on track to have 88% of our kids stay stable in their home. Mm-hmm. And we in track them in yeah. their foster home. In their foster home. Um, even, even higher numbers of kids who are home with their families, over 90% are able to stay in their home. Um, but when a child comes into foster care, for them to move and move and move, it is one of the key indicators we look at is around child stability and mm-hmm. have been able to move that in the right direction really by looking through the child's eyes and being our foster parents, our heroes. Mm-hmm. They need real help. And um, so we now have foster parent coaches. We learned about having yeah. youth coaches. We have foster parent coaches who go out and provide that service to make sure foster parents get what they need. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that, that's great to hear, and it sounds like it's usually important, I mean, to have that stability because I guess in the absence of it, um, a lot of, you know, there can be a lot of pitfalls. Yeah. There's nothing, when kids go through trauma early in life, Safety and stability are prerequisites for everything, mm-hmm. for all of their success. And so we really focus on trying to make sure we assure that so then they can explore and decide who they want to be and, and you know, really pursue opportunities. I feel like that same way because um, when I was at the Graham School in Westchester, um, I, I was at the residential program and I stayed there. And, and down from the janitor all the way up, you know, just the CEO, um, everybody was helpful and, you know, just trying to put in the input and try to motivate you to do better because they see something into you and, you know, they want, you know, everybody's job there, you know, is to help us, mm-hmm. everybody else, and they want to help us out. Right. And I think that was the greatest thing for me to be with the grand program, to just to um, wind up with Grand Wyndham, and I'm, I'm fortunate to be here today. So much more I want to talk about with this subject. Yeah. We're running out of time. You said off camera that you're yeah. going to college now yeah. and you're trying to give back a little bit to yeah. you know, the communities that you, you came from. Can you tell, tell us um, about that? So currently in Astoria, Queens, New York, um, we run a program called Living Legends New York City, and we do a lot of community um, service-based work with Hannick um, Incorporation as well. We got a tie with them. And what we do is we do a lot of community service work. And then as the kids, you know, it's like a legend. They become a legend. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go into the community every day, and people, you know, you see a lot of things. What's going on? What's, what can I do in our community? How can I get involved? So we take a lot of kids from junior high school and, you know, kids that's beginning, they freshman and sophomore year in high school. And we try to we have, like, meetings, panel discussions, you know, what can, what can we make a difference? And then afterwards, um, we have, like, tournaments. You know, we try to you know, fulfill the kids' best interests mm-hmm. and help them be motivated. So a lot of kids like sports, you know, so we do basketball, soccer, and lacrosse currently. So and then we have them travel, you know, play at the top tier um, teams around the state in New York City, you know, Connecticut, you know, as much as possible. And, you know, we've got some private funding. So 
That's great. That's great. And I'm trying I, to get him to work for sure. us. Too. I was going to say, it sounds like he's 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 preparing to be one of the slam coaches himself. I hope, um, so. hope so. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk just a little bit specifically about Graham Windham and how long it's been around. We were talking sure. again off camera just about um, some of the the challenges now with a lot of states who outsource uh, some of their their um, yeah. child welfare programs, and there can be some some problems with that. But what you were saying is is Graham Windham has been around even before. Um, you know, the city and state governments were really dealing with this issue in any kind of... Yeah, we are the longest-serving child welfare organization in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were started in 1806 by four amazing women, including Eliza Hamilton, who had six children. That Eliza they were Hamilton, trying. who is Alexander Hamilton's... Exactly, family. Eliza Hamilton, um, who was married to Alexander and after his death mm-hmm. um, was um, doing a lot of service. Um, I think there's a sense that she had an abundance... She was actually fighting day after day for services for, mm-hmm. and for funding for young people. They were working with families, and some of the mothers passed away with mm-hmm. widows. Um, and so there were six orphans that they needed to figure out what to do with, and they opened the home. Mm-hmm. The, um, and it was call, called back then the Orphan Asylum Society, not language we would use today. Mm-hmm. But they were really committed to the, making sure that these children were raised and had opportunity in the world. And that has spawned into what we do today, serving about 5,000 mm-hmm. children and their families each year. One last thing, because we're really out of time. Uh, next month, May, is Foster Care Awareness Month. Um, what, what should people keep in mind as, as we look to that? Just that the 9,000 uh, children in foster care today um, are joined by thousands and thousands of kids who have been touched by the child welfare system, all of whom the city has decided to intervene in their life. And I believe the social contract has to change when we intervene in people's lives in that way. Mm-hmm. And so sticking with young people, seeing them through until they are successful. Mm-hmm. Life has ups and downs, but everyone needs to go through that, those ups and downs with someone who deeply cares for them. That's what we're trying to do, and I think that's what needs to happen for the entire system across the country to be able to succeed. Okay, well, I'm sorry we have to cut it off here. I wish we could talk more. Um, yeah. Deshaun, Jess, thanks so much for joining you. us today. We Pleasure. Pleasure. Thanks. 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 New, new media organizations seem to be popping up all the time, especially in Brooklyn, and often with personnel ditching venerable old media organizations like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and in the case of our next guests, Vice. They're the creators of the Nameless Network, a youth media group. What does that mean? Well, they're going to tell us about that and about the Museum of Pizza. Kareem Rama is the CEO. Thanks for joining us. Of course, thanks. And Alex Serio is the Chief Content Officer of the Nameless Network. Welcome to 112BK. Um, so, can you guys give me the one-liner? Um, maybe, Kareem, we start with you. What is Nameless Network? Uh, Nameless Network is a youth media company that's dedicated to creating original programming around knowledge, discovery, and pop culture. Knowledge, discovery, and pop culture. And, and why the name Nameless, Alex? Well, uh, we were looking at uh, one-word URLs, and Nameless was one of them. But it also seemed very evocative of the brand. We Mm -hmm. wanted the content to kind of stand for itself. So Mm -hmm. 
nameless seemed like a very good naming mm -hmm. option. Uh -huh. And so youth media company, who's your target audience? Our target audience is primarily 18 to 34-year-olds. Um, we definitely skew younger oftentimes mm -hmm. and get, you know, 13, 15, 17-year-old people watching our videos. Um, but generally, it's, it's an audience that's definitely under the age of 34. Uh -huh. And I, so there's a lot of media out there targeting that audience. I think it comes down to nutritional value. Um, Young people want uh, information, and they want it in an entertaining format, and I think we strive to do that. We try to approach topics like everyday phenomenon and reverse engineer it, and I think that there is uh, innate curiosity, um, mm -hmm. and we kind of tap into uh, the desire for content that serves a purpose. Mm -hmm. I noticed some of that, and I, I watched um, a couple of your videos. The, I mean, we mentioned the explainer ones, mm -hmm. and sort of um, the one about sneezing, for example, or yawning. Actually, I think you did one about sneezing and one about yawning, which is cool. Like, you know, something we don't think about. Yeah. And then tell me about how that series got its start. I think for us, I mean, we were thinking about how do we make smart videos for the smartphone generation, mm -hmm. uh, and. In our office, we're always talking about like how stuff works, right? Mm -hmm. Generally, and it's always stuff that we all do, but have never really discussed or talked about or even questioned. Um, so I think the idea of marrying this, like Alex said, everyday phenomena mm -hmm. and these kind of questions that we should have knowledge about but don't, um, and we saw that there was a gap that needed to be filled. You know, oftentimes the news is reporting on current events um, and other niche players are, are uh, reporting on their niche topics, but no one's doing general knowledge and discovery. So that was really the, uh, the kind of creation of that series. Mm. Yeah. So when you guys have like an editorial meeting, I mean, what are, you, what are you really looking for when somebody presents something to you? For everything explained, we've kind of gone into passive mode where our audience base actually asks us questions mm -hmm. through either the comments or our direct message. Mm -hmm. Can you explain this? Can you explain that? I think it always has to have like a kernel of uh, curiosity for all of us. Like, there are things that you don't think about every day, like seasonal allergies that are affecting half of my office right now. So taking a step back and being like, what is that exactly? Why do so many people? Why are so many people afflicted? Um, and really, kind of having ubiquitous appeal. And so you guys are. I think on your website it says you're more like an entertainment company, right? Yeah, it's the intersection of entertainment and education mm -hmm. uh, that we really specialize in. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, talking about entertainment and information, I mean, let's get down to what we're really here to talk about, which is the Museum of Pizza, because I think that is, is really <laughs> something exceptional. Yeah. Um, is it, this is your brainchild, Kareem? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's um, something that I was thinking about for uh, I hate to say it, but like a year. Um, and only a year? Yeah, only a year. Thinking How long have you lived in Brooklyn? Six. Okay, well. All right. Well, you're forgiven. I mean, for only having pizza on your mind for <laughs> one out of those six years. So, um, so tell me about it. Um, so, really, the idea, um, you know, it really came out of a desire to extend nameless content beyond the digital world, mm -hmm. right? We we really, as an office and organization, have challenged ourselves to think how can we transform what we and others love so much in the digital world into a physical experience. Um, and that manifested itself into the idea of, muse of, of, of a museum. Mm. Um, from there, it was you know just kind of a natural, like I had been thinking about pizza for a long time. I was thinking about pizza 
in my first week in New York when I was walking around Manhattan exploring different neighborhoods and the only thing I had was a slice in my hand all the way to when I was having you know a birthday party with 20 of my closest friends having pie, big pizza pie. So it's like this thing that had been with me from my first day in New York to my last day in New York. Um, so that was really kind of the um, mashup of those ideas and, and something that like I celebrate it. Many of my friends celebrate it. Whose pizza do you like? Just since we're here, we could actually have, maybe we'll have a pizza segment down the road. You can come back and we can do like a pizza specific, tasting. Specific slice, easy Easy answer. Uh, Prince Street Pizza, square slice, Uh corner piece, pepperoni pie. Uh Uh, That's hands down my favorite pizza, and I'm actually mostly a vegetarian. Have you ever been to Defara's Pizza? I have not, but I actually have a text message telling me to go there. And it sounds like you've been... Yeah, I've been. It's, it lines around the block in the yeah, summertime especially, yeah. Can you just give us a quick teaser of what one will see at the Museum of Pizza? Or are you guys keeping that under wraps until you unveil it? The best way to think about it conceptually is one part museum, one part Instagram funhouse, mm-hmm. and one part historical preservation of pizza. Okay. I think... Any samples there? There will be there will be pizza. Yeah, definitely. There will be pizza. <laughs> but uh-huh. it's not a pizza festival. It's not a pizza festival. It's a pizza celebration. It's a the- celebration of the idea... <laughs> There, pizza. there mm-hmm. was a pizza festival, and it really went badly. Badly, didn't? Yeah. yeah. I think uh, I think all of the press has been really helpful in identifying a few items where we really need to hold up our end of the bargain, which is you know delivering on some delicious pizza in an expeditious way, and having a non you know uh, like as much of a biodegradable footprint as possible. And mm-hmm. these are a couple of things that we're very, very, very cognizant about. Maybe a sample of that New York water that everybody says is responsible yeah, for. Yeah, yeah, for the dough, yeah. It's just a bowl of water. And like, Here it is. <laughs> I'd buy it. <laughs> right. Well, guys, thanks so much. Um, real quick, uh, if people want to go check you guys out, where do they go? They can go to namelessnetwork.com and like all of our pages on Facebook. Okay. They'll start getting videos in their feed, and if they're interested in the Museum of Pizza, they can go to the museumofpizza.org. Okay, great. Well, we'll look forward to having you guys back in the future. Thanks so much for coming yeah, on today. thank you for having us. Thanks. The Nameless Network has graciously offered discounts for admission for the Museum of Pizza for 112BK audience members. So check out at themuseumofpizza.org, put in the code 112BK for $5 off. And that's the show for today. Thanks for joining us. Tomorrow we'll be back to talk about immigration detention and deportation, including ICE's effort to deport a U.S. citizen. Plus, we'll hear from two Brooklynites opposed to the huge new 80 Flatbush project. Hope you can join us. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.